Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is engineer and artist Andrew Johnson. We talk about his engineering work and his artistic practice, blurring the lines between both at the intersection of engineering's crisp mathematics and physical materiality and art with its unbounded possibilities, creative expression and playfulness. Good architecture, good design, you you don't always even know why it's good. It's just good because it's, you know, it's really thoughtful. And, and, and all of these decisions are being made that are not maybe immediately apparent, but it's kind of a slow burn. And if you really take a step back and look and think about it, you start to realize why it all kind of works. Andrew Johnson is an artist and engineer born and raised in Nebraska. He received an MAE degree in structural engineering from the University of Nebraska in 2006. He is a self-taught artist and works in a variety of media. Johnson has shown work throughout the metropolitan Omaha area, most notably at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts and the Union for Contemporary Art. As a practicing engineer, Johnson works on a variety of project types and market sectors throughout the United States focusing primarily on local and regional work. He enjoys close collaboration with architects and designers and has worked on several award-winning designs. Johnson has extensive experience with structural designs for art and performance spaces, including the Jackson Dinsdale Art Center at Hastings College, the Hoff Family Arts and Culture Center in Council Bluffs, the Union for Contemporary Art Campus, Omaha Benson Theater, and most recently, the new addition to the Joslin Art Museum. Andrew Drew Johnson, welcome to Lives. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate it. It's difficult to talk about your endeavors because you blur lines. Your art is informed by engineering and your engineering is informed by art. And I wanted to read back to you uh, a quote from your LinkedIn profile, which is from the late engineer Peter Rice, known for his work on the Sydney Opera House, Centre Pompidou in Paris, Lloyds of London, among many projects. And the quote is, the architect's response is primarily creative, whereas the engineer's response is essentially inventive. And you seem to have existed for years and years, at the intersections blurring these various perspectives. So as an artist and an engineer, what for you is art? What for you is engineering? Uh, yeah, that's a tricky question. I think there is a lot of line blurring between those. Um, so I, I guess for myself personally, engineering is what I do, you know, what I would call as a day job. It's what I was formally trained to do, you know, uh, backbone in mathematics and physics and, you know, those types of sciences, right? Um, and it's a fairly, you know, at the core of it, it is a fairly black and white endeavor, right? There's, there's, you know, it's objective, it's right or it's wrong. You can verify it factually. You can run calculations and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas, you know, and, and art obviously is extremely broad. I think that beautiful art can be based also on mathematics and science for sure, but obviously doesn't need to be. Uh, so, you know, it's, that's a really big question for me personally. Like I said, I think that, um, I think of engineering as what I do during the day and outside of the office, what I practice on, on my own personal time, I would consider art and my form of art can take on a lot of different appearances, um, or media, you know, painting and collage work and sculptures and, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the sculpture work specifically is kind of, it is engineering, right? There's, there's physically, there's steel and there's cables and there's magnets. And that's a body of work I've, I've done a few years back now. But just as an example, it's, it is very uh, sort of science-based. And, and I think that it's a clear, if you, if you saw the work and then realized that I was also an engineer, 
it would it would make sense, right? <laughs> it would kind of sort of click. So I'm not sure if I quite answered that well because it's a really challenging question. I think that there is no good definition of art, at least that I've come across. I think people have tried and maybe failed more than they have succeeded. I think there's there's things that are maybe universal about it, but you know, once we think we understand what art is, it I think that definition is blown up and, and it changes the very next day. And um, but that's also what's so sort of brilliant about it, and that's what I love about it. You know, there's no definitions, right? When it comes to engineering, how do you think about bringing in what might be a more opaque, nebulous, uncertain, artistic, creative expression? Yeah, so architecture is is sort of the, you know, I, I work within the architecture realm, right? We design buildings specifically. There's a lot of structural engineers out there that design bridges and other stuff. Uh, a lot of industrial work that actually doesn't really have a lot of architecture involved. It's just you've got a logistical problem and we need a, something to solve that problem, right? It's And there's really, it doesn't really matter how it looks. It doesn't matter. It's not really occupied by, by the public necessarily. So, uh, but I like to focus on, and what I do focus on is sort of, uh, commercial projects that are designed with a whole team of people, right? So there's there's an, an architectural team, and that's sort of where it usually starts. So they they work with the client, they develop a program, they develop whatever they're trying to do, and then I'm just one member of the design team, right? So architectural team, and then they have have consultants who will help them figure out obviously the structure. Uh, acoustics of the of the space, uh, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and all of these other things that you know architects know a little about, right? But then they hire people who know a lot about, right? Those specific things. Um, so, from an engineering standpoint, what we do when we design buildings, you know, you 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 have to start by taking a cue from the design team, right? The architects involved. So typically they'll reach out, they have this project, maybe it's already sort of, you know, got some concepts on paper, maybe not. Um, and they have kind of a rough idea about what they're trying to do. They might have a rough program. It's in this part of the country or it's, you know, this type of client, it's a nonprofit project, it's for a bank, you know, whatever it might be. So all of those things, help to sort of push the design forward. You know, I try to, I try to slot in and whatever they're trying to do, I want to try and make happen, right? As best I can. So um, if they have a clear path forward and, and it seems to be viable and it works, then great. You know, we'll, we'll design a structure that works for them. Um, I, you know, which is fine that that's, you know, just like anybody's job, you've kind of got bread and butter work and then you've got the, you know, the ones that are the the most fun, right? So the bread and butter work is fine. They're all enjoyable. I learn something from every single project that I do, right? Um, But the ones that I really enjoy doing are the ones that are, they're really kind of nebulous to start that they maybe have a really rough idea about what they want. But when the, the architects will reach out to me and say, hey, Here's kind of what we're thinking about. Could you, let's just sit, let's brainstorm, right? Like what what could this be? I like when I'm invited to take part in the design. I've been doing this for a long time. You can't just, you have to kind of earn that a little bit. I think that's fair, right? But I think that that once you've got to that place where, where you're invited to the table to actually take part in the design, you know, we, we do have a lot to offer, right? And that's where, Back to your initial question, a lot of the creativity and the artistry can maybe really shine. It's no surprise that you've worked on a number of fine and performing art spaces, but I'm just wondering if there's an example of when you've been invited into a discussion about filling in the gaps between the vision of what this three-dimensional space could be Mm -hmm. and you being the person fleshing that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. there's been a number of projects where, again, they have a loose idea, you know, maybe they want, you know, I don't know, a, a four-story open atrium space, you know, let's say in a building. In fact, I had a project like that. It's been a number of years ago. It was a, it was a headquarter building for a, a bank here in town, right? 
they have an idea of what they want and they, you know, you, you sort of can think through different options for them, right? Because again, they're coming to, to us structurally because we have that experience and, you know, so they'll say, Hey, how, what, what could we do? How could this look? You know, well, we could use steel, right? And if we use steel, it could kind of look like this and we, we could explore all these different options, right? And steel has, you know, is it going to be left exposed to view, right? It has a very, you know, it, it has a certain appearance. It has a certain, you know, tactile feeling to it. Um, we could use, you know, heavy mass timber, right? Wood, it's warm. It's, you know, it's beautiful. You can feel it. It feels nice to touch. It's, it's sort of, you know, I think it's, it's uh, a lot more organic. I mean, literally, and I think figuratively, right? If it's more like your living room at your house, right? Um, there's cast in place concrete, there's precast concrete, there's so many options, right? So I think that they kind of have a loose idea. And I think that's where um, we, you know, given the, the, the stage to kind of do what we can do. And I think that, you know, I think at, at the more creative you can be, the more likely you are to get that stage, right? Does that make sense? Uh, but yeah, I think that we can bring a lot to the table, right? And we can come up with ideas and 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 kind of help hone that. And a lot of times that that is what happens, right? They'll say, okay, here's what we're kind of thinking. How could we structure th this roof? It wants to be exposed, but we want to have skylights. Okay, cool. Well, how could we integrate the skylights into the structure? And, you know, obviously anytime the structure can be, you know, a, a major design element, right? You rattled off a bunch of projects by Peter Rice earlier and, and you know, there's projects all over the place, small, small, you know, and, and, and large that sort of showcase the structure, the structure be, is the architecture, right? And those types of projects are, you know, as you, you can imagine some of the more enjoyable ones for us to do, right? It's fine if they want to, you know, make a box and our structure goes away up in the ceiling, you don't even see it, right? But it's a lot more fun if we get to sit side by side with those designers and we get to sort of help drive, you know, at the end of the day, when you look up and look around you, what you see is our work. You know, it's not just our, it's not just the structural work. It's obviously very, you know, closely collaborated on with the design team and everything's figured out, right? But when it all comes together, and that's other engineers as well, the electrical, the mechanical, we'll have projects where we design, the, you know, maybe large steel beams and we put holes in the beams so that when they run the, you know, fire sprinkler lines and all the things that buildings need to have, right? It's just really well coordinated and you know thoughtful. I really appreciate you talking about the materiality. You've talked about steel and glass and concrete. And I'm wondering if for you, is there something unique, special or particular in the magic of material? And I, I don't know quite where I'm asking you to go with that, but just you are working, yes, at a computer, but you're working with hard three-dimensional materials. Now, I wonder what, what's the alchemy for you in working with that kind of product? It's huge, right? The materiality is absolutely huge. Each of those materials that you had mentioned, wood, glass, steel, concrete, there's more, right? There's new, there's new science and, and, and stuff being figured out daily, right? But they each have a, a rich sort of history, different project types historically, right, have used heavy timber or maybe masonry, uh, brick and, and all this other stuff. So, um, so I think depending on what story the design team is trying to tell with their project helps to inform what materials kind of make the most sense, right? And you know, vice versa, though, you can use, choose m the materials and that can start to tell a story. Um, it's a project I didn't actually work on, but a, a lot of my friends worked on it. There's this, uh, it just opened to a museum in Iowa dedicated to Norway, right? That It's a small town that's founded by Norwegian, but this, this beautiful new museum, it's all this really rich, you know, wood. It's very Scandinavian and just, it, you know, obviously it harkens back to the home country and, and how they would do things there, right? It was the, the wood used was, was, you know, specific 
you know, Norwegian spruce or whatever, you know, it was. I actually don't know. But they kind of go hand in hand is what I'm getting at, right? The materiality is very, very important. I think that, um, you know, there's certain things that you want to surround yourself with because it's comfortable. There's certain things you want to surround yourself if you're trying to make a really big impact. Maybe you want to be the exact opposite of what your living room is, right? Big giant steel girders, right? You're not going to have that in your, you know, like in your home. Um, but yes, absolutely, the materiality is huge, and I think that, you know, as an artist, right, that there is a lot of of decision that goes into exactly what are you using and why, and I think a lot of it just comes back to everything has this sort of embedded meaning, embedded symbolism, this this history. Um, and and I think that that can be quite powerful, right? And and even if you don't, even if the average person who's walking through the, the space or looking at a you know a piece of art, even if they don't immediately realize that they're surrounded by these materials, or you know, I think that um, you, you sort of you can like feel it. It's like bigger. It's like this living kind of thing, you know, and you can sort of just sense it. Yeah, I think good architecture, good design, you you don't always even know why it's good. It's just good because it's, you know, it's really thoughtful and, and, and all of these decisions are being made that are not maybe immediately apparent, but it's kind of a slow burn. And if you really take a step back and look and think about it, you start to realize why it all kind of works. In some ways, you are living at this intersection where you have an unbounded imagination of what could be that is encountering and creating friction with the natural laws of physics and mathematics. Steel and concrete can only take so much load and your imagination might have them flying through the air doing all sorts of interesting things. But you choose to live at the intersection between what could be and what can be. It feels to me as if you're trying to trouble and worry that space to test the boundaries of both of those. Uh, yeah, I think for sure. And I think that, that you know, it, it's hard to, I think that I am a part of a t team that likes to do that, right? You know, it's not fair to sit here and say that, yeah, that's what I, you know, I, it's years of working with designers and who, who think like that as well, right? Like-minded folks who, and, you know, who, yeah, who want to blur the lines, push the boundaries, right? Try to stretch, get that extra couple feet on the cantilever, that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, as we progress through, you know, when I first started, the technology is what it was. Now, you know, 20 years later, it's considerably more, you know, uh, capable. And there's computer software that we use and, and, you know, other types of materials, higher strength materials, for example, that, you know, physically have allowed the, the profession to sort of push those boundaries and make the beams go a little bit farther, right? Make the building a little bit taller, make the glass, whatever, a little bit thinner, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I think it's exciting, right? I mean, I, there's a time and a place for, you know, for the traditional classical, you know, elements and, and, you know, style and the materials and that kind of thing, right? That's, that's fine. Um, but I think that, you know, in any profession or any industry, you know, there's, you're always trying to move forward somehow, right? And we certainly are as well. There's new technologies, you know, as we, you know, uh, and it's not just from an aesthetic standpoint, right? We're interested in, in, you know, at, as we design buildings and we're aware that we're, you know, we're, large contributors to climate, you know, climate change and, you know, carbon emissions and all these types of things, right? So it's not just, you know, make the beam go a little bit further. It's like, how can we reduce the amount of material that goes into the building, right? How do we make the materials that we're using cleaner, you know? Um, how can we find ways to reduce carbon emissions and all these other things that, you know, they're real, real challenges, right? And it doesn't necessarily, you know, that specifically doesn't necessarily it's not really a structural thing, but I think to, as a designer working in the industry, I think we all have to be sort of aware that everything that we do, you know, plays into that, right? And we have to be, you know, stewards. When were those moments that stand out to you as a child 
where you can see now looking back, of course I was going to be an engineer. I was trying to build blocks and shape things. I mean, can you can you see that when you look back at your childhood? Uh, yeah, maybe a, maybe a little bit. I used to really, uh, oh man, let's see. I've never really thought about that. That's really fun though, Stuart. I like that question. Uh, I remember like I would, old electronics and stuff, I would like to, you know, they were broken. They didn't work anymore. So I'd like to kind of like unscrew all the screws and just kind of look and see, you know, and I'd have these ambitions. Like you said, I like, you know, I do have this part of me that's kind of like this dreamer, right? I like to think about these big ideas. And then I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm just incapable or too lazy to kind of follow through with them. But, you know, you'd get these old electronics that never worked and, and you know, rather than throw them, or, or before you just throw them in the bin, you would maybe go in the garage and start to pick it apart and just have a look, you know. And I would think, oh, you know, maybe I can fix it. Maybe I'll, and it's all like transistors and things. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, you know, at all. So I would, you know, just take it apart and that was it. You know, it'd be kind of fun. Um, my friends and I were on our bikes and, and skateboards and all that kind of thing. You know, so we would sort of pull out all of these materials from our parents' garages and build ramps and we'd try to make rails so you could slide in you know you know it was just ridiculous it was just super unsafe i think back now <laughs> like, like i would never let my kids ride their skateboards on any of the stuff that we would build probably nails were sticking out of it were just a death trap i'm sure but yeah so we would do that that sort of thing um you know i growing up though i didn't really i think i always have but i didn't maybe realize that i was such a you know, a fan of architecture and kind of the built environment. I didn't really register growing up through school. My kids, have they went to public school out in Elkhorn and they got to take shop class and, and you know, industrial tech and a lot of these kind of cool classes where they learn about, you know, a lot of these things. And there's like CAD classes and all these types of things. I grew up in Columbus, Nebraska, not too far from here, but I went to a Catholic school and, you know, they just didn't really have those. Those weren't really options, right? We had theology and that kind of stuff take the place of those other electives. Um, so, you know, I never really had a formal architecture or, you know, even engineering. I didn't even take physics in high school. I took anatomy and that kind of, I was really interested in that sort of thing. In fact, my first year of college, that's what I was sort of planning to do. I was taking biology and psychology, a lot of these kind of gen eds to kind of get, you know, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll be a doctor, you know. My grandfather, he was a doctor. Um, you know, did pretty well, had a really great house. You know what? He's got some, he's got it figured out. You know, if you just do that, then you can live okay, right? So I, I started doing that. Um, and yeah, ultimately I, I decided that that wasn't really quite for me. What was the motivation for you to transition from your grandfather's got it worked out, I need to be pre-med, I need to be thinking about this, to adventuring towards this engineering pathway yeah i think that it was you know whatever i was 18 going to school in my hometown there was a community college there and my mom worked there and so if if you were a you know a, a child of somebody who worked on campus you got to just go there for free so it was great you know um so i got to take all these class just these gen ed kind of you know coursework for free um and yeah, I don't know. At the end of that, at the end of the first year, I just, it kind of hit me like, you know, I don't, I don't really know if my, first of all, if like my heart's in this, but I also like, at the time I couldn't see that I was maybe, I, I just, I couldn't think about doing this for another <laughs> 12 years. God bless you, grandpa. I don't know how you stay in school that long, but you know, I just, it, it became just, it just uh, quite apparent that I wasn't probably going to last that long in school. And so, and at the time, my, who's my wife now, but at the time she was my girlfriend, she lived in Omaha, you know, which was like, so we were, you know, separated and, and, you know, so I'd drive up all the time and she'd come back and, you know, so I said, well, I don't know if I'm interested quite in medicine anymore. Um, and she always really liked the idea of me doing medicine, right? Cause she's like, if we ever stay together, well then, you know, she'll have it made me. <laughs> and she was just like, what are you doing? You can't not do this. But I'm like, I don't know. I, 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 and so I was looking at different programs in Omaha and came across my degree is in architectural engineering, right? 
So I saw as I was just going through the list and just, you know, that, trying to figure out that could be cool. That could be cool. And I was I was a pretty good student in high school. Not like tremendous. You know, I think there was maybe uh, something like 80 kids in our class. And I was probably like right in the middle. You know, I I feel like I was I probably could have put in a little bit more effort, you know, as as, as, as I look back on it. But I got by just fine. Um but I was okay at math. I was okay at science. I liked those things. I also really liked art, you know, we'll get to that, I'm sure as well. But, um, you know, I never really, like I said, I never, there was nothing in my education that was like architecture based or like, you know, even adjacent. There's just none of that, you know, but as a kid, you know, we'd, we'd go to Omaha all the time and go downtown. And it was like my favorite place in the world, right? Just, you get to see all these old buildings and they're huge, you know, and and they were close together and you'd walk down the sidewalk and it's just, you're, you know, you're just dwarfed by these buildings. And it was just, I thought it was just the coolest thing ever. My, in fact, my, my uncle slash godfather is an architect too, you know, and he was always super cool. And, and, you know, I think we're uh, maybe, maybe 15 years apart, you know, so he was always like, I was a kid and he was like in college and he just, he was the coolest, uh, and so I'm, you know, I kind of thought architecture was started to click that that was kind of a cool, you know, interesting sort of thing to do. And I just saw architectural engineering. And to be honest, I don't know if I really like read much more than that. I just saw those two words. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I know architecture is buildings, right? That's, that's, yeah, I like those. And engineering is usually math and science. I'm like, that seems, that seems like it could be pretty cool. So I enrolled in that degree, uh, moved up to Omaha and, and, um, yeah, that's what I studied. The first year was like really hard. It was it was a lot of new ideas and concepts. And like I said, it was the first time I took physics and like I just bombed my first physics test. Oh my God. And I remember going back uh, and I was talking to Jill who's, <laughs> at the time was my girlfriend and just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, I just feel, I feel so dumb. Everybody in this class has taken physics in high school and this is like a refresher and I'm like scribbling notes, you know, like just cause I have no idea what's happening. And, uh, but yeah, stuck it out. And it turns out that the more I got into it, the more I really enjoyed it there. I do enjoy the objectivity of it. It's, it's kind of right and wrong. And there's something sort of satisfying about that. Right. There's a lot of things in this world that it'll never be black and white. It's just not, but there's something there that it is, it's, it's right or it's wrong. When did art show up in your life? Like, do you remember thinking I am an artist? I'm doing art. I mean, was this in your childhood? Is it something that emerged later? Do you even call yourself an artist? Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, yeah, as a kid, I always really liked it. You know, my parents are both pretty creative folks. Um, I found a couple, you know, they weren't maybe active, actively doing art, but I remember you'd go in the kind of the basement storage room and you'd be, you know, rustling around just to look at stuff and, you know, find a drawing, you know, that, that they would do. And it's, that's quite nice. I always really enjoyed, you know, drawing and, and stuff as a kid. And I, uh, I remember my friends and I were really into like drawing, like we would like invent shoes. Like we would like draw, draw you know, shoes. We were really big, like Chicago Bulls fans, Michael Jordan fans. We would draw like basketball sneakers, you know, in profile and, all this kind of thing. I, I just remember that was a big thing. A lot of cartoons and stuff that we would draw. Um, and then, you know, as I transitioned into high school, there was, I was able to, as I said uh, earlier, there wasn't a lot of, you know, elective stuff, but we did have a pretty decent art program. Had a really great art teacher there, um, Mrs. Milner. She was amazing. Um, but yeah, so I would, all the art classes that were even offered, I would, you know, if I had a free hour, I would take one of those classes. It didn't matter what it was, you know. In fact, I think they even let me, like, as a senior, I think they let me just kind of take independent, you know, study art classes, which, you know, I didn't, not even on the sort of option list, you know, or whatever. But I just really enjoyed it. It was, uh, you know, it was a good break. And it was then and it still is now, right, as I think about it. It's like you do all these things. You go to your English class and math class and all this. But then, you know, in the middle of the day, you got to go way up on this other part of the building, like completely separate from everything else. And it was the art wing. And it was just like a whole, it was like a playground, right? It was like, you didn't have to sit in a desk, you know, with 
in, in a row and, and, you know, hear a lecture, you know, which was fine. But this was just, it was a large room and, and I could go and do this or I could go and do that. And it was just a lot of fun. And it was a good sort of way to kind of break up the day and kind of like use maybe the other side of your brain a little bit, you know, and kind of shut off the logic maybe and sort of turn on the, you know, the kind of your more the way you feel about things instead of think about things. You recently had a solo exhibition at the Union for Contemporary Art, and it was titled Sanctuary. Why was it called that? And and what were some of the pieces that you were displaying there? Uh, yeah, so it was it was a show at, at the Union. I think it opened uh, mid-July, closed in September. Specifically, the works were, uh, it was kind of, mixed media oil collage stuff on paper most of it was framed so that was kind of what it was and it was sort of uh you know it was studying the the purpose of it was to kind of study composition and form colors the, the interaction of those colors you know it was sort of like kind of basic artistic Research, I suppose, is maybe the, the word. You sort of put stuff together and see how it feels and see how they work together, that sort of thing. And, and um, it, yeah, but um, the, the, the kind of the, the point of it, right? I mean, the point of it is, and I've used this, I had to write some stuff up uh, for the show. And I, I began to realize that I was doing this work. So I worked the eight to five, right? And then you go home and you have family and all this stuff. And then you get to go down to the studio, which is just in my basement. It's like in a mechanical room right next to the water heater. It's, it's really sad. There's no natural light, but so I I'd go down to the studio and, and, you know, it, it was almost just like automatic, you know, you could put some music on and you could just sort of, you sort of turn off the brain is really what it felt like. It's like, I didn't want to pre-plan and, and have this research based art, right? Which is, to be clear, I love art like that, right? I mean, I love really all forms of art. But for me, and the, the way that I, my day-to-day things I have to do and the things I like to do and want to do, this just, it needed to be um, go down to the studio, turn some music on, and just do, you know, just do it, right? Specifically not focused in logic, it was just all sort of, I, I don't like the word automatic, that's not right, but it was all intuitive, right? I, I didn't have a preset agenda. I just wanted to see what happened and sort of see how that evolved. And it just became at that time, you know, I think, the, so the show was just this summer and I had started the work kind of like at the, like at the start of, the, of winter, I guess, 2022. And so it was kind of done in a pretty short amount of time. I was just like every day I'd go down and crank out some stuff and you know, before you know it, you just have this pile of, of work and you just kind of like you blacked out and you wake up, you know, and you're just like, you know, all this stuff exists. But I, I realized as I was, you know, after I, a lot of this stuff had been done and I took a step back and to think about it, it was, you know, it, it was for me like a counterweight to, you know, the more logical half of my life, right? Um, and as I said earlier on, on this show, I, you know, I, there is a lot of work I've done in the past that is kind of based in, in, in engineering and science and straight lines and logic, you know, and that's, that's cool. I love that stuff too. But at this point in my life where I am, I, I wanted to kind of be the exact opposite of that, right? I wanted to not think about it. I wanted to just do it and then think about it later or not think about it at all, right? I wanted to, to kind of do the work using my my guts, not my you know brains, I guess, right? Uh, which is tremendously fun. I would recommend it to anybody because we all have lives that are filled with stress, right? And jobs and things you have to do and bills to pay and groceries and all the th- you know all that stuff, right? You just and you get you get the news going constantly, which is depressing. And and we could probably spend a whole weekend talking about that, which I don't want to do at all. But um, so this just became a a way for me to kind of decompress, explore these different ideas. Artistically, um, there was no agenda. It was really like a playground, right? So the, the concept of sanctuary, back to your question, you know, it's like 
and it's got a lot of different sort of meanings to it, but really it was a it was it was my sanctuary and art sort of is and has been my sanctuary, right? It, it's a space for me to kind of get away from normalcy of life and explore things that are they're bigger than than me. They're bigger than us, right? I think I think about it like it transcends us it, and it taps into this other stuff that's more sort of um, you know, and artists have been doing it for years, right? Some of my favorite artists kind of have the same concept where you tap into these sort of, I don't, you know, I hate to use the word spiritual, but sort of like it just becomes something bigger than you. As you look back on the work you've created, what do you recognize? What do you see in the work that you've created? Are there themes or is it literally just, as it were, an emptying of, of yourself away from the pressures of the professional life, normalcy as you, as, as you described it. So did you see some themes? Did you see something bubbling up that was inside you? And, and what is that? What was that? Yeah, so I think a lot of themes, but believe it or not, what I get the most, which is almost comical, I, I take a step back and look at that work and it's all, they're all structures. <laughs> which is what I do. It's just a totally different kind of structure. And I was at, I had to do a, a, uh, a gallery talk for this show. And, you know, at the end, there were some questions, whatever. And, and, uh, and of all people, uh, Brigitte had asked a question, the founder and, C- or, uh, you know, executive director of, of Union. She made a comment like, you know, Drew, I look at this work and all I see are you know, all I see are sort of really unsafe structures <laughs> that are sort of on the verge of kind of toppling. And, and yeah, for the listeners, you know, the work was very, you know, somewhat abstracted, non-representational works, um, you know, shapes, colors, that kind of thing. So, but yeah, it, but there is, and always kind of has been this, this sort of theme of, of, you know, shapes or blocks kind of stacked precariously, maybe, um, you know, so I, yeah, if you give yourself a little space from it and take a look back, I, I, I do. I see it, and, and it kind of makes me laugh. And I think I, you know, you can only come to the conclusion that you know the time you spend in your at your desk, right, working your the you know quote unquote day job, right, it does. It sort of informs everything, and and likewise, the stuff I do, you know, on my own time informs what I do professionally, right? But that's what's, yeah, that's what's great about it. In your artist statement for the show, you said you want all your work to be error. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, like I said, it, it, I, you know, I, I hate to use the word need because that seems a little bit much, but I definitely wanted that. I wanted it to be, the point being that it's kind of the opposite, right? The point being that art, doesn't have to be objective. In fact, is will never be objective. You know, it's just almost by definition a subjective sort of, you know, thing. But again, the opportunity, right? The, the space, the the sort of safe space to kind of to play, to explore, and you know, the idea that you brought up earlier about kind of pushing boundaries professionally. That is how you sort of learn new things right and so artistically it's kind of the same way where it's easy to sort of make something and then just keep making the same thing you know a billion times over and especially it's easy if like if you make something and then somebody's like "Ooh, that's nice can i buy it and then you make a couple bucks and oh i'll just keep doing that because it's really easy you know and i get i'll sell it for sure um yeah, but that's really not you know that's not the point obviously but um yeah so i think it's i, th- I think it's fun i think that's how you learn through obviously through trial and error i think a lot of error is how you learn the more error in your life the more you probably learn and at the end of it all i think everybody strives to be you know myself included I'm, you know you'd strive to be just perfect right you want your hair to be just right <laughs> uh yeah you know everything just so and and it's like that's great but it's it's not real it, it's just not and i think that it's making a point to to the visitors of the show to the people who took the time to read that statement 
you know, to other artists, whoever it might be, even non-artists, just in your everyday life, like that's okay. Like that's just, that is what life is, right? You won't be perfect. It is error. And there's a lot of beauty in that. In fact, I wrote that statement and, um, the communications director at the union who was helping me kind of assemble that artist statement. I kind of put it together, sent it to him and he, you know, kind of polished it up and <laughs> made it really nice, you know, but yeah, he had a comment back saying that there's, um, there's like a, a strong Buddhist philosophy uh, in, in the same thing that I not really, I don't necessarily study that. So I wasn't, but I read about it and it was interesting where you're never going to be perfect. Don't try that. You know, the more you sort of push yourself and, and do new things and, and ultimately fail and learn. And, and there's, there is a lot of beauty in that. Um, and yeah, like I said, it doesn't have to be black and white. It doesn't, doesn't have to be perfect like other parts of my life or, you know, so I wanted to sort of take advantage of that. Nancy Novak is a very well-respected interior designer in town, working at a well-known local architects firm. And she observed to me that your work is reminiscent of Clifford Still's work, a very well-known American modernist painter. Do you see that in your work? And do you see um, other artists inspiring the work you create? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think that unless you're doing something really, really crazy, I think it's probably unfair for any artist to sit here and say that they're not inspired. You know, of course you are. So yeah, Clifford Still, that's great. Um, he's obviously one of my favorite painters. And in the time that he was painting, right, which was kind of the 50s and 60s, he was sort of just outside of the sort of New York school, the abstract expressionist movement, you know, in, in the 50s is really when it had its heyday. But I mean, yeah, that, that period of time uh, and that sort of, I guess we'll call it genre of, of art, you know, genres in general are not fair to anybody, you know, but as we, you know, for better or worse, that's what it is, you know, so artists like Clifford Still, Robert Motherwell, Philip Gustan, Willem de Kooning, you know, they all had their own style, Mark Rothko, you know, they would do these things and, but, you know, and, and they all have their own artistic aesthetic style, which is great. Clifford Still's work is amazing. Oh my gosh. I'm just drawn to the idea. I'm drawn to like thinking back, you know, if you were, you know, nowadays abstract art is everywhere. It's, you know, it doesn't shock anybody now, you know, but it's like what they were doing back then. It was just, you know, not that they invented abstraction by any means, but they really took that idea and they just they just pushed it to this limit right um and you know almost to absurdity at sometimes but but um i i just i i love that i love the idea of of you know of 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 this big time abstraction specifically the this sort of expressive form of that right um it's it becomes about the action not really what's left on the canvas. You know, it's like the process to get there. A lot of people dislike modern art. They look at that and they say, oh, my kid could do that, you know, and it kind of drives me nuts when people say that. But what's left there, that's, that's not, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, right? That's really not the point. The point is what it took to kind of get there and what they're, what it's really, you know, getting at underneath of that. I'm curious how the ability to sell your art. Your art was for sale at the Union mm -hmm. exhibition and many of your pieces were sold. How does that blur the line between you having your studio in the basement, the creation of art as a sanctuary, a way for you to escape? How does that line get blurred when, in fact, it, it can also be commercialized in some ways and, and, it, and it was for sale? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that... Um just before we we walked in here, we were kind of, you know, touching on this topic. But so, you know, as I've stated, I I do have you know what what I'll call the day job, right? That I make a salary and it pays the bills, you know, and and art is really not required financially for our family to kind of do our thing, right? I I do enjoy it very much. It is part of my life. But yeah, so as an example, this the process, the show that we just had, I really don't have a lot of shows. It's not, you know, I'm not hustling art every year. I don't have a show. 
this was a big deal for for me. It was a lot of work uh, to to get it on the walls, and you know, it was a lot of fun. I think the last time I had a solo show was maybe ten years prior to that, Stuart. So it it really was a pretty good chunk of time. You know, there's some small kind of group show stuff in between there, but you know, so my point being that I'm not sure if it's a luxury or not, but the fact for me is I don't need to sell art to, you know, feed my family, right? And so for me, the financial component of selling art or, or selling art in general, it, it is, it's very secondary. Now, the work I do produce, it was for sale. A lot of it did sell, which was really fantastic. You know, and that's just kind of a nice little bonus, you know? It's also sort of, there's a practical aspect of it. I think the show at the Union had, you know, something like 25 works that were framed. And there was a lot of work on the walls that were unframed, you know, so a pretty large volume of work. And if I come home at the end of the show and I have 25 framed pieces of art, I might, I don't have enough walls, you know, to hang that stuff. And, you know, and it's kind of a shame to just have it sit there in your basement again in storage and it's not doing anything. So because of that, um, because, you know, it wasn't necessarily a requirement, you know, I went into the show. I didn't really have any expectations of a couple sold. That would be uh, fantastic. I remember talking with Brigitte about the show. You talk about what's going to be in it. So I had created all this work and her and I are good friends and, and, you know, we have coffee and she was asking if I'd been doing some stuff. And I said, actually, yeah, I have, you know, cause sometimes we'll talk and I'm saying, you know, I haven't done any work for several months, you know, or even here. And she asked to see some of it. And so I sent her some photos. She loved it. And she said, you know, hey, I've got some spots. You know, what would you want to do? I said, okay, fine. Um, so we put it up there. Didn't really have a lot of expectations. Um, but as we got, you know, as it got closer, you start talking about pricing, right? Which is kind of, you know, that's really tricky. It is, right? I mean, unless you're like, you know, big, big artist, I think the tendency tends to be, it's just something I made and, you know, it's really not that special. And so you tend to undervalue things. But going through that conversation, I remember saying, well, here's where I want the work to be priced. And there were, you know, I had a lot of options. I had some really small ones that were very, very affordable. That was a big part of that show was I wanted everything to be accessible. I wanted anybody to walk in the show and if they saw something that they liked, it was within reach, right? Because you go to some shows, but you'll see these price tags on this art and it's tremendous, you know, four or five digits. And you're just like, oh my gosh, there's, it's impossible. You know, there's just no way I could ever afford it. I love it. Can't afford it. Especially when my kid could do that. <laughs> Especially when your kid could do it. Exactly. But for this show, I wanted everything to be priced kind of not, not on the low side. I think that's not fair, but on the lower side. And I wanted to have a lot of options so that a, because I did want to move a lot of it, right? I didn't want to come home with all this stuff. It was more about wanting it to be, again, accessible. I wanted anybody to walk in and feel that it was tangible. It was within reach. I worked with Dan Crane, who's the print manager there, who's a good friend and just amazing. But we worked on a screen print edition together. Those were very affordable and pretty cool. And then I had some small kind of unique works that were oil paints that were, you know, double digits, nothing too crazy. And then, you know, kind of went up from there. Um, but even the most expensive thing really wasn't that much compared to a lot of other stuff. So, um, you know, so again, I, I, I wonder if art was my only source of income, you know, how would that have impacted those choices? You know, would I have been able to price it at that or would I had felt, I probably would have felt more pressure to, you know, tweak those up a little bit. So Brigitte had mentioned, you know, hey, you might want to, like, I think some of that could probably be a little bit higher, you know, and I said, well, that's fine, but I I do want it to be accessible. So we we kind of met in, in, in the middle there a little bit, but that was important to me for that show. But yeah, it is interesting if that was the only source of income, you know, you would have felt there's some more, there's a lot more pressure, right? And I think that anything in life, when you start to put a lot of pressure onto it, it doesn't become the thing you want to do, right? And that's kind of the part about art that I really, really enjoy is that I don't need to put any pressure on it. It can come naturally. There's times where I really get in the zone, you know, and I, and I, 
and I can just work and it's, and it's just like joy, right? It's pure joy. There's no expectation. I'm not making this for a show specifically. I'm just making it to make it, right? But I think that, you know, if, if that was it, and these are just rhetorical questions, you know, it, would there be a lot more pressure on it and would it be not as enjoyable? You know, I don't know the answer to that because, I, you know, unless I quit my other job someday, who, yeah, who knows? No, but, um, but so I don't know the answer to that. But it feels like for me personally, the more I put pressure on something, the less joy is probably left at the end of the day. And a big part of why I do art, again, is to kind of offset some of the other parts of my life, you know. So I do want that to always be filled with joy and, and you know, this sort of sense of freedom. And, and I, I, I would worry a little bit that if I didn't have that opportunity or if I had to rely on it, that I might not have that opportunity. Are you an engineer that does art? Or are you an artist that also does engineering? I'm a, a person <laughs> that equally does engineering and art. I think that at the end of the day, there are a lot of differences between those two things. But there's actually a lot that's very similar, right? I don't know if they're really, really that different at the end of the day. So I think that I am a... 50% artist, Stuart, and 50% engineer? That's a tough question. It's a good question. But I, I think it's it's also irrelevant. I think some days I'm an engineer and I'm a big E and a little A, and some days I'm a big A and a little E. My guest today is Big E and Little E engineer and Big A and Little A artist, Andrew Johnson. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. I had fun. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.